if you've been in our church for the last couple of years, you know that we're revisiting a passage I've preached here before. And I sort of apologize for that, but not really. Because this is a passage that is so good for us to revisit again and again. It's good for me, my own soul, to revisit it again and again. Let me explain why. I just got back from Coconut Creek, which is outside Miami, where I was attending the Reformed Baptist Network General Assembly. And on Thursday night, I had the privilege of attending a high school football game with our hosts, and Peter and Mariah were there as well. And I say privilege not because that particular game was so great or those high school athletes were so astounding, but because the game itself is dear to my heart, as it it is to Peter's heart also. And so here we were, two American football fans, sitting there in the stands watching an American football game. And I think he loved it, and I loved it too, because we love the game. And one of the things that was really interesting for me, attending my first high school football game in the U.S., was to see just how much bigger a high school football stadium is compared to Canada. And we weren't even in Texas, y'all. In, in Canada, there were no spotlights. There were, if it got dark, that's it. There was no scoreboard on our field. There were a few sets of bleachers, you know, the kind that maybe 20 people can fit on. We had maybe three of those on the side. That was about it. It was just, it was just the game. And the players were there and your parents were there. And maybe some of your friends, classmates were there. That was it. But in this school in Coconut Creek, there was, at this school in Coconut Creek, there was a scoreboard. There were spotlights. There was a PA system with an announcer calling out the results of each play and giving us information. And there was a team of cheerleaders even, and there was seating for a couple thousand people at a high school football game. In professional sports, whether football or baseball or whatever, the stadiums in North America are obviously even bigger than that. And some of you may remember this story, but when I was four or five years old, my parents, my dad took me to a major league baseball game. And the capacity of that stadium was over 50,000. And so to put that in perspective, the capacity of Kensington Oval is apparently roughly around 11,000. So we're talking like five times the size of Kensington Oval. So it was, it was big, especially for a four or five year old. And my dad and I were up in the cheap seats, way, way up in the upper deck. Obviously, you can't <clears throat> keep moving the seats further and further back. And so you build higher and higher. And so we were way up there. And I was a four or five-year-old kid, so I was up there climbing around the seats, flipping up the stadium seats, flipping them down, and just walking around wondering. And then over halfway through the game, I turned and I said to my dad, Hey, Dad. Look, there's some guys playing baseball down there. (laughs) I had missed the point entirely. I had completely missed the point of why we were there at that Major League Baseball game. 
up there in the cheap seats, removed from the action, climbing around, flipping up seats, flipping them down. I had completely missed the point of why my dad had brought me to that baseball game. Psalm 96, which we read just a few minutes ago, is a don't miss the point psalm. Psalm 96 is a this is why we are here psalm. It provides the big picture of what life is all about. It helps us make sure that in our lives we don't miss the point. Like I did at that baseball game so long ago. Psalm 96 answers the questions, why do we exist? What is the purpose of our lives? Why are we here? And that's why this passage is worth revisiting again and again. Here's the main idea of this psalm. Here's the answer to the question, why are we here? It's in verse 8. We exist to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. That's why we're here. What does this mean? Basically, to ascribe is to acknowledge or give due credit to something or someone for an attribute that he already possesses or for an accomplishment that he has already achieved. So, for example, you ascribe authorship of a book to its author. You ascribe speed to sprinters. You ascribe strength to weightlifters. Ascribing authorship doesn't make someone an author. It simply recognizes that someone already is an author. Earlier this year, in our women's book study, we finished up Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson. If you ascribe authorship of Devoted to God to Sinclair Ferguson, you haven't made him the author of the book. You simply recognize that he is the author of the book. Likewise, ascribing strength to someone doesn't make them strong. Ascribing strength simply recognizes that someone already is strong. And so a man wins a powerlifting competition, and in view of his accomplishments, you ascribe strength to him. You say, wow, he's really strong. He won that whole thing. Now, glory is weight. Most literally is weight. That's what the word means, weighty. The sense of it is importance, majesty, significance. That's what glory means. And so to ascribe glory to God is to acknowledge that He is already glorious. You don't make God more glorious when you ascribe glory to Him. God doesn't improve to become more glorious when we see and recognize and acknowledge His glory or ascribe glory to Him. He already is glorious. And we simply have the privilege and the responsibility of acknowledging God's glory. So when the Scripture says, ascribe to God the glory that is due His name, it's saying that He is glorious He is weighty and important, and we need to acknowledge that He is glorious and live in a way that reflects our acknowledgement of His glory. So that's why we're here. That is the point. Don't miss the point. 
That is what life is all about. Why do you exist? It's not for your own comfort. It's not for your own fun. It's not for your own self-gratification. It's not even to reach your highest potential in the service of others or some noble cause like that. It's not ultimately to use your gifts and abilities to make this world a better place or anything along those lines. Life is not ultimately about any of these things. Life is not ultimately about your family. Life is not ultimately about your friendships. Life is not about your career. Life is not about the house that you live in or the car that you drive. You exist to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Don't miss the point. That's the basic idea of today's message, but let's examine Psalm 96 in greater detail. The structure of this psalm is very simple. It it presents truth about God intermingled with appropriate ways to respond to the truths about God that are contained in this passage. So it does two things. It tells us who God is and it tells us how we should respond to who God is. And it does those together. It weaves those together. But for the sake of putting them in easy categories in our minds, we're going to first look at who God is, what this psalm says about who God is. And then what we're going to do is is go back and look at how this psalm tells us we ought to respond to who God is. The goal is that we would see God more clearly. The goal is that we would see God more properly as the one who is supremely glorious and deserving that we would acknowledge and appreciate his glory and that we would ascribe to him the glory that is due him. So with this in mind, let's examine the psalm now, beginning with who God is. And the first thing we need to point out is that God is the Lord. Verse 1, the Lord, verse 2, the Lord, verse 4, the Lord, verse 5, verse 5 again, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 13. The Lord, and you should know by now that when you see capital L-O-R-D, it's a transliteration of God's proper name, Yahweh. We know specifically who God is. In the pages of Scripture, He reveals Himself to us. He tells us that He is Yahweh. He is not a vague higher power. A God of mere natural theology. That we know that there is one. There has to be. It's irrational to think otherwise, but we don't know exactly who He is. He is not merely that God. He has given us this book, and He tells us, this is who I am. Yahweh. He is not the man upstairs, as some people like to, I think, irreverently refer to Him. He's not simply God in a generic sense, as most human beings believe in a deity of some sorts. That's not specific enough. The God to whom we are to ascribe glory is Yahweh. 
Do you believe in a specific God? Do you believe in Yahweh? Do you believe in God as He has revealed Himself to us in the Bible? Because that is who we are to worship. That is to whom we are to ascribe glory. He is the true God. He is the only God. He is Yahweh. We are not to ascribe to Allah any glory. We are not to ascribe to Krishna any glory. He is not Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, Milcom, or any of the false gods worshipped by the nations. He is Yahweh. Yahweh is His name. The biblical God is the only God. The biblical God is Yahweh. The Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is the Lord. So let's be clear. I'm not urging you to simply just develop your religious impulse. Like you know there's a God out there somewhere. And I, and I want you to wake up tomorrow morning and thank Him for life. That's, I'm saying much more than that. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due to Yahweh. And in verse 4, David says that Yahweh is great. This is one of those instances where language seems insufficient. What an understatement it is to say that God is great. Indeed, He is great, but that just seems so inadequate. What is the one who set the stars and the galaxies up there for us to see on a clear night? What is that God like? Oh, He's great. What is the one who filled the Atlantic Ocean with water by the power of His Word and causes it to come crashing on our shores all the way from the west coast of Africa? What is He like? Oh, He's great. What is the one who created every sea creature that swims in that Atlantic Ocean? What is the one who filled the sky with birds? What is the one who filled the land, covered the land? with creatures of all sorts, even putting us here, beings created in His image, to be vice-regents, to rule with Him according to His mandate over the rest of creation. What is He like? The one who formed all of this with so much wisdom, manifested in the order we see all around us such that scientific inquiry is even possible. What is he like? What is the one who holds the universe together by the word of his power like? What is the one who entered into this world, having formed it and having seen it rebel against him? What is the one who entered into this world to rescue it like? In Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, the angel Gabriel prophesies to Mary that her son will be great. My nickname for that verse is the angelic understatement. Indeed, Jesus is not less than great, but he is more than great. Great is just simply not great enough language for him. It sounds trite to say, Oh, he's great. What's the God you worship like? Oh, he's great. Even if we said it with the most vigor we could muster up. He is a great. He is a great 
God. It still just doesn't quite seem enough, does it? I feel when I say that, like I'm in a symphony, and you can hear the string section and and the, the percussion and all of these various instruments playing beautifully, and it's all swelling up to a great crescendo. And here I am. Remember a triangle? Ding! <laughs> Ding! <laughs> all for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. For better words. I wish I could say something with more gravity and magnificence. Yahweh is great. Next, look at verse 4 where we see that Yahweh is to be feared above all gods. I remember when I was a teenager, I went to church and one of my best friend's parents had visited my dad's church that day and printed in the program was a scripture it's in Peter and it says among other things fear God and my friend's dad said to me see that right there that's what I don't like fear God many people don't like this idea of fearing God many people don't fear God but it's only because they don't see Him right that they don't fear Him and that they don't think that He ought to be feared. And then you hear preachers saying things like, well, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you ought to be scared of Him. It doesn't mean that you ought to be terrified of Him. It, it just means that you ought to have awe and reverence for Him. But listen, if you're not a Christian, you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. And you will burn in eternity forever. Because God will send you there. Why ought you not to be terrified if you are outside of Christ Jesus? The one who knows your every thought. Who sees not only what you do and what you say. But what you think. Equally clearly. And who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but after that they can do nothing more to you. No, fear him who after he has killed the body can throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So listen to me loud and clear. If you are not a Christian... You should not, if you are perceiving things correctly, you should not be able to walk out of here and eat lunch. You know when, you, when something is troubling you so badly that you can't even eat? You couldn't think about eating? Because if something is weighing on you too much? You need to understand That like Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, you 
are dangling by a spider web, as it were, over the flames of hell. Don't fear people out there who can only kill the body. Don't worry about those brandishing weapons. There is someone much more scary, a holy God who deals severely with sinners. And you are one, just as I am one. But I'm going to speak about the gospel in a second. For the moment, you need to hear that if you are outside of Christ Jesus, you have every reason to actually be scared. Every reason to actually be terrified. Give it some thought. Do you fear death? A lot of people do. Do you fear experiences on this side of death? I'm sure all of us have some things that we fear. What Jesus is telling us is there is something much more scary. Dying and going to hell. Think about that. And fear God. To us Christians, we have the gospel and we need not be terrified. And I think that's what preachers generally mean, being charitable. When they say you don't actually have to be scared of God, you don't actually have to be terrified. I think there may be meaning. Christians don't have to be. And perhaps they're making an assumption, which is probably a bad one, that everyone listening to them is a Christian. We as Christians don't have to be terrified. We don't have to be scared because there is a gospel which we're going to speak about in a moment. But Jesus, who is one substance with the Father, as the ancient council put it, very God of very God, Yahweh himself, who was in the beginning with God and was God. Jesus is called in Scripture our brother and our friend, our prophet, our priest, but he's also called our king. He bled for us. His word is life. He gives himself for us and so on and so forth, but he shall rule over us in his eternal kingdom. He is glorious in his person and in his word. We cannot become overly close with Jesus. We cannot become overly close with Jesus. But we can become overly casual with Him. We cannot become overly close with Him, but we can become overly casual with Him. We we must not forget that He is the prophesied one of whom the psalmist writes in Psalm 2. Verses 11 and 12, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. People make jokes about Jesus. It ought not to be so. Jesus is our friend and our brother, our prophet and priest, revealing God to us and reconciling us to him. 
And he is also our king who will rule over us forever. We ought not ever to forget to bow the knee before that one to whom every knee will bow and of whom every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Next we see that Yahweh is the creator. This is verse 5. In contrast to worthless idols, our triune God is the creator. Idols are made of wood, but God made the wood. You see, that's how, that's how much superior God is to other gods. Idols are formed of created things. God created things. You understand how much superior God is? And that's the logic here of this. The gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. See the point? These are created things, but he's the creator. It's not a contest of equals. It's not even, it's not even up in the air, really. It's not like God is marginally stronger. Like he is like, he has like 90 strength. And his opponents have like 75. You know, it's not like that. The gods of the peoples, among whom are demons, beings more powerful than us, in league together against God. We were talking about it at community group a few weeks ago. There's this scary passage in the Old Testament. This just came to my mind. I didn't have it written down, so I'll have to paraphrase. But there's this passage where Israel is battling with one of her enemies. And they're winning. They're overcoming. And then the king of their opponents, it says that he sacrificed his son. And then it says, it just says, and great wrath came upon Israel. And then it moves on. To me, that's terrifying. Because you understand what's happening there. The king murders his son in human sacrifice to a false god. And then it says, and great wrath came upon Israel. Which means, by implication, it wasn't just a block of wood, but there was a being behind the block of wood, as it were, who fought against Israel. And for whatever reason, God permitted, in that case the exertion of power against Israel in this military. You understand that when he says here, the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, he's not merely saying those blocks of wood are just wood. He's saying even the demons behind them are worthless idols. But in contrast, the Lord made the heavens. He's saying the demons didn't make anything. The demons have no power but what is granted and permitted to them for a time while our sovereign God uses them as pawns to execute whatever it is that he wants to do in the world. Those gods are nothing but the Lord, Yahweh, made everything. <clears throat> Colossians 1.16 By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, listen, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. 
every king, every empire, even the spiritual forces behind every king and every empire were created by Christ Jesus for Christ Jesus. As our creator, in contrast to false gods, God has a legitimate claim, a right to be our God. You understand that? Everyone in this room owes God worship. Well, I'm Islamic, or I'm Buddhist, or I'm secular, I'm agnostic, I'm atheist. Never mind that. You were still made. And because you were made, you owe your maker worship. You see? It's not, an, it's not a neutral thing whether you ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. You were made by Him and for Him. As verse 5 says, He is the Creator. Now look at verse 6. He is splendorous and majestic. There are kings who don't like not to be praised. Okay? <clears throat> As I was refreshing this message for this morning, as I told you at the beginning, I preached it before. This illustration was in here, and in my notes it says just last weekend. But it obviously wasn't just last weekend. A few years ago, but, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. As soon as I give you this illustration, you'll, you'll be like, yeah, it's, it's just as timely this morning as it was whenever I first preached it. All right? Donald Trump responded to a skit on Saturday Night Live which poked fun at him. He tweeted, Saturday Night Live is the worst of NBC. Not funny. Cast is terrible. Always a complete hit job. Really bad television. Like That could have really been just last weekend. Nothing changes. Nothing has changed in that respect. Some people, some kings... Some presidents, some prime ministers don't like not to be praised. Evidently, they can't handle it. It upsets them. It bothers them. And they need to take to Twitter to defend themselves. They can't handle the absence of praise. But Jesus is so superior to earthly kings and presidents, so glorious, that he cannot ultimately not be praised. Did you catch that? Not just he doesn't like to not be praised, but he cannot ultimately not be praised. That's how glorious he is. Luke 19.40 If Jesus' disciples were silent, even the rocks would cry out. In Philippians 2, 9-11, we read that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every willing Christian knee should... You understand? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. He cannot ultimately not be praised. Oh, you're an atheist? For now. Give it time. You're a Muslim? For now. Give it time. Whatever else you are, give it time. I'm here telling you about Jesus. 
We go out as Christians into our families, into our network of friends, into our workplaces, telling people about Jesus. And they don't listen. Sometimes they don't listen. But it's always yet. Yet. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When he comes back, as Revelation 19 tells us, in figurative imagery, on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, with a robe, the bottom of which is dipped in blood from trampling his enemies underfoot in victory, with his name written on his skin, When he comes back, whatever that figurative imagery is telling us, it's telling us that he's going to be, first of all, visible and manifest. You won't be able to ignore him. Secondly, it's telling us that he is going to be mighty and that you're not just going to be able to walk away and say that you're not interested in encountering him. It's telling us that he's going to be glorious and you're going to have to reckon with him. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is so glorious that the world cannot ultimately sustain its blind rebellion against him, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness forever. His glory will shine through in the end and we will all see it and we will all bow before him. Jesus is so superior to earthly kings that it's not merely the case that he doesn't like to not be praised. He cannot not be praised. Next we see in verse 6 that strength and beauty are in Yahweh's sanctuary. The sanctuary of which David is speaking here. Let's be honest. The sanctuary of which David is speaking here is the tabernacle. We know that when we understand our biblical history. It was the place of God's special covenantal presence among the Israelites under the Old Covenant. The Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant. Cherubim of hammered gold stretched their wings out over the mercy seat, which was on the cover of the Ark. And between the wings of the cherubim, sacrifices were offered once per year for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. And the sacrifices offered under that covenant were graciously accepted on those people's behalf to propitiate God's temporal wrath against them. The reason why God didn't strike Israel down in a day is because of the gracious provision He had made in the sacrificial system for them. There was a certain strength and beauty in this sanctuary. But Hebrews tells us that that sanctuary wasn't an end in itself. That these things that I just described were copies, pictures, shadows of true things. Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly 
as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, what that Holy of Holies was teaching us is that there is a barrier, a curtain between us and God. The Holy God who lives beyond that threshold. It was teaching us that you cannot get across that threshold without being dressed in clean garments as the priest had to be when he entered. It was teaching us that you can't go in without something or someone dying for sin. Without the wrath of a holy God having been propitiated, you better, when you try to cross that threshold, you better be dressed clean and you better bring blood. It was teaching us that there is a God who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And that that seat is glorious. But it was also teaching us that that seat is merciful. That there is a mercy seat. And that God is willing to have people come across the threshold who are dressed properly. And who have blood with them. Signifying the propitiation of holy wrath against sin and that if those conditions are met and God's holy wrath has been propitiated and someone comes in dressed clean God is willing to have members of the human race in his holy presence all of those things pointed forward to Jesus who lived perfectly, weaving himself a garment of spotlessness out of white lamb's wool, as it were. And then that lamb of whom, of whose wool the garment was woven, without blemish or spot, he was slain. Christ Jesus hung upon a cross at Calvary. There, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. His blood was shed. Jesus rose from the grave three days later and says to us, as it were, here, take this garment made of my spotless wool and take my blood, for I am the Lamb who has been slain, that you might cross the threshold into the Holy of Holies. Go there, and there's a glorious God beyond that threshold. He is enthroned above the cherubim, sitting on a glorious throne. But that seat is also a mercy seat. And when you go there with my blood and my garment, you'll be accepted. If strength and beauty were in the earthly sanctuary that the psalmist mentions here in Psalm 96 and verse 6, how much more strength and beauty 
belong to the sanctuary where Jesus Christ accomplished. All of these aforementioned things. Look at verse 10 now. Yahweh is sovereign. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The psalmist says elsewhere, Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does most of what He pleases as long as it doesn't impinge upon anybody's free will. As long as the demons don't band together and thwart His plans. As long as the kings of the earth don't gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us cast their cords from upon us and let us burst their bonds asunder. It doesn't say that. Psalm 115 and verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. I mentioned already Hebrews 1.3, which says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And that is pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? He upholds the demons who rebel against Him by the word of His power. He upholds the kings of the earth who gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. He holds them together by the word of His power. He holds every rebel together by the word of His power. He holds all things together by the word of His power. We cannot be strong enough in our affirmation of God's absolute sovereignty. Listen to our confession of faith. God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, freely and unchangeably. What has He decreed? All things whatsoever comes to pass. Many are uncomfortable with that idea for various reasons. But being uncomfortable with something doesn't make it untrue. There's lots of true things about this world that I'm not comfortable with. The scripture affirms here and elsewhere, uniformly, the Lord reigns. Yahweh is sovereign. He's really doing what He wants to be doing. He's really ruling this world the way He wants to rule this world. Things are unfolding according to His decree. He's not out of control. And yet look at verse 13. Yahweh is a righteous judge. He he will judge the world in righteousness. Our confession goes on to say, God has decreed all things whatsoever come to pass, yet in such a way that God is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. God will not use His sovereignty to do wrong, but to do right. To do righteousness. To render righteous judgments. Do you realize that God is never unfair to anybody? And I mean literally anybody. You can think of the worst circumstance you can imagine. But if you get the baseline right, which is that we all deserve hell, God has never decreed that something would come to pass which was worse than we deserve, strictly speaking. You understand that? But when we do something unjust against somebody else, God holds us to account for that. 
So nobody has ever been treated, strictly speaking, in the grand scheme of things, worse than they deserve. But every time that someone has sinned against another, God will hold that person to account. So God does no injustice. And God holds to account, calls to account every act of injustice that others have perpetrated against others. With righteousness, Isaiah 11 says, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. I mentioned that passage from Revelation 19 earlier. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. We just spent about 40 minutes looking at what this passage shows us about who God is. Can you see if all of this is true? And it is. Can you see just how glorious God is? How should we respond to who God is? How should we respond to God's self-disclosure? His revelation of himself to us in the storyline of scripture. What is the right response from us? We move to our second point, which will be briefer. And there are two categories of right response to this glorious God. There is Godward and manward. Or we could say vertical and horizontal. If God is this glorious, it affects the way we relate to Him. And if God is this glorious, it affects the way we relate to others. All of our Godward or vertical duties in response to the greatness of who God is could be summed up simply in the command to worship. Verse 9. This psalm tells us to worship God in singing, praising Him, fearing Him, ascribing glory to Him, trembling before Him, being glad, roaring. When was the last time you roared because of how glorious God is? You've got to go home today. Shut the door of your bedroom. Roaring, rejoicing, exalting, and singing for joy. You can understand here, a vigorous response. You shouldn't just be like, oh yeah, he's glorious. Amen, brother. Well, what's for lunch? You understand? A vigorous response is called for from this passage. The words used, sing, praise, fear, ascribe glory, tremble, be glad, roar, rejoice, exalt, sing for joy. But all of that really could be subsumed under the heading of worship. It could all be put in the category, the box of worship, the file of worship. File it all there. If God is that glorious, and He is, then what we ought to do is worship. 
We ought to sing praise to him. Music is a way of expressing the overflow of joy in our hearts. We sing when our hearts are full of joy. Music is a way of expressing the overflow of sorrow and other strong emotions in our hearts also. This is why God commands us to sing, you know? Because He wants our hearts engaged in our worship of Him. It's not just because He figured we should be at church for a little bit longer, so we should add a few songs in there. How's He going to feel a whole day of worship without singing? That's not why God commands us to sing, you know? The singing that we do is not preliminary. Like, let's get the preliminaries over with, which is another reason to really try to be here with your hearts prepared beforehand. So that when we begin, we begin together. Because God commands us to sing. We ought to fear Him and tremble before Him. We touched on this earlier, so I won't belabor the point. But that's part of our worship. As Christians... As Christians, no longer being terrified, but yet retaining that reverential awe. Is it a light thing to you to sin? Is it a, is it a casual thing for you to come to church? How much about clothes? What you wear? I'm talking about your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance but God looks on the heart those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth God is very concerned about the state of our hearts that our hearts not be casual when we come fear him we should fear God as Christians in a different way than non-Christians do. We should have heart-pounding, exhilarating joy at the thought of God. Jesus, the very thought of you fills my heart with joy. Just think of how you may have had great joy alongside trembling at a moment of tremendous occasion or when you met a person of tremendous importance. Perhaps you had to work up the courage to go and say hello or perhaps you just turned around and someone was there, whatever. Rejoice with trembling. We should fear God as Christians like a lion cub playing with its father. The father could crush the cub, but he won't because he's his daddy. It should be an exhilarating delight to be this close to the God of the universe. We have to ascribe glory to him. As I said at the beginning, this is the central idea of the psalm. 
This phrase is representative of the whole, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. It's the whole psalm in one concise phrase. If I asked you, what is Psalm 96 about? Or when you go home today, if a family member asks you, what was the sermon about today? When you go to your workplace, if you're talking about church on Sunday, they say, what was it about? Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. This psalm shows us how great and glorious God is. And then it calls us to acknowledge his glory. There's glory that's due him. We have to acknowledge and give him, ascribe to him the glory that's due his name. Verse 8, we ought to bring an offering and draw near. Though we don't go into a physical temple or tabernacle anymore with material offerings in our hands. As I said earlier, the symbolism of the sacrificial system was intended to teach us something about the realities of how God is to be approached. Even now in the New Covenant, what Deuteronomy 16, 16 says is true. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Everyone needs to bring an offering when we approach God. We are not to go into God's presence without something to please and honor Him and to pacify His anger towards our sin. We, like the saints of old, must not appear before the Lord empty-handed. But we have a problem. Because as Isaiah 64 and 6 says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Nothing we can bring God in and of ourselves is sufficient to bring. So here we have an invitation. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Listen, unbelievers, you're not trusting in Christ Jesus yet? Hear an invitation from God in the Scriptures. Bring an offering and come into His courts. You may come, but you must bring an offering when you come. What will you bring then? Because all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. What will we do? In Isaiah 53.10, we read, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Did you catch that? This is the prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ, who at that time had not yet come. He would make an offering which would make many to be accounted righteous. The most fundamental offering that we bring then when we come into God's courts is to worship Him. Pardon me, when we come into God's courts to worship Him is the merit of Christ Jesus. The offering that He made, we lay hold of and bring it. And that's the offering that we bring when we come into His courts. Unbelievers, how can you get into God's courts? What offering can you bring? Bring the offering of Jesus. The offering that He made. Nothing in my hands I bring. We sang earlier in the service. The hymn writer, Augustus Toplady wrote, Meaning, he's not bringing his own righteousness. He's not bringing filthy rags. Nothing in my hands I bring. 
However, he went on, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Ah, so there is something in your hand, sir. The cross of Christ. What about your statement then? Nothing in my hands I bring. I see a cross in your hands. This is the tension of the Christian life. This is the tension present in the Christian religion. Nothing in your hands in one sense. And yet the need to bring an offering. No works of your own to plead, but the necessity of works. You don't just approach a holy God willy-nilly. You don't just come in and say, you know my heart. And so, on the one hand, nothing in my hands I bring. Oh Lord, I could never come into your holy presence on the basis of my righteousness. I dare not bring anything in my hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Where the offering then? Where the propitiation for your sins? Where your robe of righteousness? Ah, simply to thy cross I cling. We have nothing in our hands, but we have everything in our hands as we lay hold of Christ Jesus and his work for us. Be glad, roar, rejoice, exalt, sing for joy. Verses 11 and 12 use personification, which is attributing personhood to non-human, identi- non-human entities. The psalmist uses personification to make the point clear that God is that glorious. That even inanimate creation owes God worship. From the bottom of the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean, which is the Marianas Trench, to the top of the tallest mountain, which is Everest. From the molten lava, white hot core of the earth to the farthest reaches of galaxies, billions of light years away. Everything owes worship to God the Creator. Even the inanimate creation ought to clap their hands and sing and rejoice and roar. If this is true of inanimate creation, how much more than we who can understand and apprehend the truth about who God is, how much more do we owe Him our worship? We, alongside inanimate creation, ought to do these things. Be glad, roar, exalt, and sing for joy. We should worship. That's the Godward response. Let's consider now the manward horizontal response that the glory of God ought to call forth from us. To sum it up, our manward response must be to evangelize and to disciple. Because God's glory demands it. The right response to God's glory is to worship Him and call others to worship Him. And to help others who are already worshiping Him, worship Him more truly and more properly. If God is truly as glorious as we have detailed this morning, and He is, more even, 
or for a thousand tongues to sing to enumerate the glory of God. If God is truly as glorious as we've detailed, then his glory should be what we're really all about. And therefore, we Christians must be an evangelizing and discipling people in addition to being a worshiping people. What motivates you for evangelism? Or perhaps a more honest question for many of us. Why aren't you motivated for evangelism? Let me summarize the logic of this psalm on this subject. God is so glorious that every molecule of creation owes God worship. The heavens ought to be glad and the earth ought to rejoice in the glory of God. How much more ought every human being to do so? Because God is glorious, everyone ought to see and acknowledge Him as glorious and bow before Him in worship. That's the logic of this psalm. And we who already see God's glory, therefore ought to care if God is not getting His due. Have you ever had a friend or a family member who got ripped off? Someone stole something from them, swindled them, deceived them, dealt with them fraudulently. How did it make you feel? Like something was wrong. And you wanted to see your family member, your friend, get what they were due. A few years ago when I was first moving to Barbados, someone sold me a fridge that stopped working after one day. He replaced it with another fridge that stopped working after one hour. And then wouldn't refund my money, and eventually I left the fridge outside for him to come pick up at his convenience. And he came and took it and denied, well, someone came and took it. I suspect that it was him. I got to be fair, though. And he denied that he took it, and to this day I have no fridge and no refund. But my family was upset about it. My parents-in-law were upset about it because they wanted to see me either get my fridge or get my money. They wanted to see me get what I'm due. You see? If we, if we love God and if we see that He's glorious and we see that He deserves our praise and the praise of everybody here in Barbados and the praise of everybody here walking this earth, we want to see Him either get His fridge or get His money. You understand? We see that creation owes Him something. And something in us cries out that God would receive the worship that He's due. It ought to bother us that he's not receiving the worship that he's due. Yes, we care about people and we want them to be saved. We don't want them to go to hell. And that's the motivation that's talked about over and over again in evangelism. And it's a right motivation. But another right motivation, and dare I say a more central motivation, is that God would receive the glory that he's due. Because the universe doesn't revolve around the rebellious person down the street who rejects the gospel. And so it ought not to concern us ultimately what happens to that person. But the universe does revolve around God. And so it ought to concern us ultimately what happens to God. And so both are valid and both are equal, but we don't live in a man-centered world. We live in a God-centered world. And that's why I say the glory of God 
I think ought to be even more ultimate. Oh, that we would weep for the lost. That we would care when someone doesn't know the Lord and won't hear. We ought to care about that. It ought to bother us. We ought to try to not only take opportunities, but as I always say, make opportunities to reach the lost around us because we care for them. But that you would see God get the glory that He's due. Let's elevate that even higher. And perhaps if you don't care that much about the lost, then you're not that motivated for evangelism. Maybe something's gone wrong here. And your whole universe is out of whack. And you need to recalibrate, reorient around that which is truly central and that which is truly ultimate. So that's the logic of this psalm. But not only is it implied in this psalm, it's explicitly stated. Psalm 96, verse 2. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Listen, don't just enjoy it from day to day as you have your devotions. Don't just think, oh, how great it is that Jesus died for me. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his nature, who he is in his essence is glorious. Tell people that. Declare his works, what he's done. Tell people that. Announce his reign, verse 10. The Lord reigns. Announce his judgment, verse 10 and verse 13. Declare and announce these things. Tell of his salvation. It's very clear here in view of who, how glorious God is. We ought to tell. We ought to declare. There needs to be an outward movement from what we've perceived to our vocal cords, to our tongues, our lips. We ought to tell. We ought to speak. It's not only implied, but it's explicit here. Declare and announce these things to whom? The nations. David was commanding Jews to tell Gentiles about Yahweh. To announce Yahweh's salvation, declare Yahweh's glory, declare Yahweh's works, announce Yahweh's reign, and announce Yahweh's judgment. So listen here. Israelites were to go tell the Canaanites that Baal was no God at all and that they should worship Yahweh instead. They were to go to the Ammonites and tell the Ammonites, your God is a worthless idol. But Yahweh made the heavens. They were to go to the Philistines and tell them that Dagon was no God at all and that they should worship Yahweh instead. We found Dagon face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant yesterday morning. He must have tipped in the night. It's a parable of the superiority of the God of Israel over the God of the Philistines. Though we are not old covenant Israelites, and though there are no longer any Philistines to evangelize to in this world today, as far as I'm aware, what is the transferable principle? We who are God's people, who see His glory, are to go to those who are not yet God's people. And we ought to, with love, with grace, 
with mercy, with compassion, with kindness, and yet with holy boldness, with courage, with truth. We ought to tell the nations that our God and only our God is worthy of worship. We are to proclaim that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are to tell of his salvation that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We are to let everyone know that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. But whoever comes to Jesus, whoever comes to Jesus, You may be a temple keeper of Dagon. You may have witnessed firsthand Dagon face down before the Ark of the Covenant. You may have been among those who sacrificed your children to demons. But listen, there is a God in Israel who's on the other side of a threshold that you can't cross without clean clothes and blood. And his seat is glorious above the cherubim. But his seat is merciful and you may come. Leave behind your false gods and repent and take advantage of the gracious provision that our God has made for sinners like you and like me. We're all equals at the foot of the cross. We are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. I, a sinner, have come into the holy of holies by the blood and righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, who lived for me and died for me. And I have found mercy at the mercy seat of Yahweh. And you may too. Leave those idols and come with me. Let me introduce you to my God. We are to go outside. The walls of this church are comfort zones and we are to tell the nations. They may not be bowing down before blocks of wood and stone, but there are idols of the hearts. Family, money, career, whatever. A bunch of things I mentioned earlier in the service. Life is not about that. Leave those things behind. They belong face down in front of the ark of the covenant. They belong face down at the feet of Jesus. Leave those things and come wholeheartedly to worship the one true God. So in a sense, this psalm could be considered the great commission of the Old Testament. You see that? This is telling us to do the exact same thing as Matthew 28 tells us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Tell them about our God. You see? Perhaps you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian and yet you are convicted about idolatry that you see in your own heart. Perhaps you are an idolater. To some extent, and sometimes we are all idolaters, so long as we remain yet unperfected prior to our glorification at the end of our lives. If so, we need to hear this reminder from Scripture that we ought to worship and ascribe glory to God alone. 
Martin Luther's first of the 95 theses that he nailed to the door at Wittenberg in 1517 to spark the Reformation said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. If idolatry has crept into our hearts, we should repent today and turn from our idolatry to a renewed worship of the one true God. But maybe you who would have called yourself a Christian coming in the door today are seeing that you have been missing the point like I did at the baseball game. Maybe you've subscribed to a brand of Christianity, a conception of Christianity that's not the biblical version. And you're seeing here today as I describe the Christian life and what Christianity is, that you are actually not a Christian at all. If that's you, the remedy is just the same. Repent. Turn around. Turn away from whatever else it is that you're living for. Come into God's presence, clinging to the cross of Christ, clothed in His righteousness with His blood in your hands. Enter the Holy of Holies. Come into relationship with God. Be reconciled to Him through Christ Jesus and begin living in a way that seeks to ascribe to Him the glory due His name. That's what it means to become a Christian. It's not about just simply praying a prayer or filling out a card or whatever. That's what it means. It's that kind of reorientation of your life. If you've never done that, come and speak to me after or speak to one of our church members. Do it. Reorient your life around God. Come into relationship with Him through Christ and seek to live for His glory. That's what Christianity is. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves this morning, whatever the state of our hearts, let's not miss the point. This life is about ascribing to the Lord the glory due His name. God is glorious. In view of that, let's worship Him and let's call others to worship Him. God's glory demands it.